The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. So, um, I think two weeks ago, tonight, we started the story of the prophets, and all we were doing was just sort of giving a, a framework to better understand the prophetic literature. So then we, were, we picked it up again in Sunday school, and I did a review, but alas, um, I made no progress in the review. We only reviewed. So, um, <laughs> so just two minutes of review tonight, because you'll need to remember this part. But we've already gone over it twice, so you guys should already have it down, right? So we're talking about the idea of, of, of how do we understand the prophets, in particular the major and minor prophets. And we said that there is a, a, a covenantal foundation for the story of the prophets, right? So Moses is the chief, he's the fountainhead, right? Nobody's like Moses in the Old Testament. In fact, um, there is an anticipation of, of a coming prophet. So you remember the woman at the well. Um, in, in fact, you see this in John, uh, where is this the prophet? Who are they looking for? Well, the one that Moses said was going to be raised up from among you that's like me. And so Moses is the fountainhead of all prophetic ministry, but he's also the fountainhead not just because of who he was as a prophet, but because, um, in a sense, uh, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, provides the foundation for all prophetic ministry, in particular, the covenant curses and the covenant blessings, right? So the covenant curses were going to come upon Israel as an act of divine judgment in the event of their um, uh, continued idolatry, and apostasy. So, in a sense, the, 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 the first great covenant violation is to break the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so that looks like idolatry, or, in the language of the prophets, whoredom, spiritual adultery. But then there's a violation of the second great commandment, love your neighbors yourself, which is... Um, basically um, committing acts of injustice against the widows, the poor, um, the orphans, uh, the stranger. And so those are the two, in a sense, those are the two primary covenant violations. And so God promises the curses of the covenant that you have in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And then he also promises uh, the blessings of the covenant, which also were in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. And so there's, um, in a sense, that the, the, the covenant structure of blessing and curse forms the very basis of the prophet's ministry, right? And in fact, um, I'm reading through Ezekiel in the, in the uh, mornings, and you see over and over and over again um, the, the language that comes to us straight from Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, as identifying the sins of Israel, all right? So, the prophets go forth. We call them prophet or uh, covenant prosecutors or covenant enforcers because that's what they're doing. They're calling the people back from covenant infidelity to actual repentance and covenant faithfulness, right? So, that's, that's their message. So, what does God do uh, as Israel and then Judah enter into apostasy, you actually have a number of summary statements in Kings and Chronicles that, and God sent them, his servants, the prophets, over and over and over again. And then, of course, the great sin, they didn't listen, right? And so, so the prophets um, prophesy within that covenantal framework. Then we said that there's an importance of locating the prophets where they fit in history. So, just by way of quiz. Um, what, is, what is the great historical event by which you locate the prophets? Exile. Okay, exile. Good job, Aaron. And so you either have pre-exilic prophets, exilic prophets, or post-exilic prophets. 
where they fit in terms of Israel's history has everything to do with understanding what they're talking about. In other words, the message of a pre-exilic prophet is going to be very different than post-exilic prophets. And so understanding where they fit in terms of um, historical chronology, right? The earliest, are they to Israel? Are they to Judah? We have three that are actually to neither. Um, And so actually being able to locate that. And then we talked uh, quite a bit of time about the story of Hebrew Bible. So Hebrew canon gives us a storyline, right? And so somebody says, well, why don't our Bibles follow that? And um, the, the, the sad answer is, is that our Bibles follow the canonical order of the Septuagint, and that goes back to um, some of the earliest times. So we end up kind of missing uh, the beauty of the storyline of Hebrew Bible. And so the prophets, in a sense, are the great commentators on Israel and Judah and their, um, basically their apostasy from, from the Lord. All right. And so with that, we, we, we come now to what I think is really sort of the, the, the great high point, and that is Christ and the prophets. All right. And we're going we're gonna to look at this issue of, of Christ and the prophets from a number of different angles. Okay. So I'm going to argue, first of all, that um, Christ himself said that the prophets spoke about him. Now, we know, we're familiar with Jesus saying Moses spoke about him, right? You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses spoke concerning me, right? So, um, but Jesus says, and we, we won't look at all these passages, they're in your notes. So in Luke 10, he says that the, the prophets actually longed to see the things that you see. And they long to hear the things that you hear, right? So, so in a sense, Jesus looks at the role of the prophets, and what are they doing? They are, in the words of 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, they are actually making careful inquiry into the Christ by the Spirit of Christ as to when these things were going to be, right? So the, the, the prophets are continually pointing us to Jesus Christ. And I want to say that the, the way that they point us to Christ is, is bigger than just specific messianic prophecies. They point us to Christ in ways that are far more vast than, let's just say, Isaiah 53. As glorious as Isaiah 53 is, the prophets are pointing us to Christ in all different kinds of ways. So Jesus uh, appears after the resurrection uh, to the disciples uh, who are on the road to Emmaus. And you remember, they don't, they don't recognize him. And so Jesus, it, it says, and beginning with Moses and, this is interesting, all the prophets showed them how the Christ had to suffer and then enter into his glory, right? And it actually says, um, says Moses and all the prophets, and then later in chapter 24, it says Moses, the Psalms and all the prophets, right? Spoke of Jesus. So, so now, uh, so this is, this, is, this is the cool part. This is how you got to link it together. So the prophets have a covenant foundation to their ministry, Curses, judgment, blessings, salvation. And in that covenant context, what are they doing? They're constantly pointing us to Jesus. Okay? Right? Are we, we, we good so far? I know it's a little cold. Some of you think you're, we're in the Antarctic and, you know, maybe the, uh, you know, blood, not enough blood's getting to your brain. But is that... You see how this is working, right? Covenant foundation, blessings, curses, salvation, judgment, and then they're continually pointing us to Christ. So how are they pointing us to Christ? Well, first, we could say that Christ himself fulfills the words of the prophets. All right? So think of 
in, in, in this sense, just think of certain promises, all right? So you have, uh, we, could, we could categorize them like this. You have Emmanuel promises. So what, what would an, an Emmanuel promise be? What's that? God's going to be with us, right? And some of those Emmanuel promises are really specific, right? A virgin's going to give birth to a son, right? And his name's going to be Emmanuel. I mean, you can't get much more Emmanuel promise than Isaiah 7, 14. But you also have, you have a whole host of these other promises of God actually coming to dwell among his people, right? By the way, they're saying exactly the same thing that Moses has already said. Okay? But then you have other promises. You have promises like um, Davidic promises. So what would Davidic promises be? I'm, gonna, I'm not just going to raise up a king like David. You have passages like that. You not only have passages like that, but you have passages like this. I'm going to raise up one of David's sons, right? But you also have, I'm going to raise up David himself. Okay? Not just like David or son of David, but David himself. In fact, those are probably the most consistent Davidic promises where God promises to actually bring David back. And of course, he's not going to raise David from the dead and bring him back. He's going to give us the greater David. So you have... Uh, Emmanuel promises, you have Davidic promises, you have promises of restoration, right? You have promises where God actually says in the prophets that what he's going to do is he's going to restore his people. He's going to bring his people back to himself. Um, Then, of course, you have covenant promises. What might covenant promises look like in the prophets. Yeah, I'm going to say that's not much of a promise. <laughs> so what got him into trouble in the first place, right? Okay. But they've 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 blown that This is, you're thinking too hard. Just relax. (laughs) Jessica. Okay, that's the heart of covenant promise, right? There's there's an element of Emmanuel promise in that. But, okay, this isn't actually that hard. How about, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Okay. New covenant promise. By the way, new, the new covenant is promised not just in Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. It is promised over and over and over again. In fact, the prophets promise a new exodus, a new David, a new temple, right? And a new covenant. In fact, a covenant that's not, well, how important is this? Not like the one I made with your fathers, which they broke. Okay? So, you know what you can say about the new covenant? It's actually new. <laughs> All right, I know that was revolutionary, but um, our Presbyterian brothers don't actually know that. <laughs> they just think it's a renewed covenant. It's not. It's a new covenant. And so, you have all of these promises, right? And, and so, and here's... Here's just sort of a, a, little, a little clue right now. So the, the promises, all of those and more, are all related to the covenant blessings. All right? All of the promises are related one way or another to the covenant blessings. Okay? Now... So the prophets are going to point us to Jesus in, in, in all of the promises that are related to the covenant blessings so that when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says that all of the promises of God 
are yes and amen in Christ. Okay? So, so in a sense, every time one of the prophets talked about, let's say, a new covenant or a new David or a restoration, anytime the prophets talked about those things, what are they doing? They're actually pointing us to Christ. Because all of those promises are only going to take place how? They're only going to take place in the person and work of Messiah. All right? So we'll get a little more specific now. So the words of the prophets, think oracles of judgment based on covenant curses, or oracles of salvation based on covenant blessings, now point us to Christ in, I'm going to say, three really distinct ways. The first is this, God's Messiah is sent into the world to bear the curse and judgment of a broken covenant. So every time that that the prophets speak in terms of oracles of judgment, oracles of doom, based on covenant curses, they are actually telling the people, these are the curses, these are the judgments that actually rightly should fall on you. Right? And are we, are, are we exempt from any of that? Not at all. Okay? And so when God sends his Messiah into the world, what does he do? He comes, we'll just use Isaiah 53 as a classic example. He comes as the suffering servant to bear the wrath that we deserve. Okay? So, this is the way that Paul will put it in Galatians 3.13, that Christ redeemed us from what? The curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. So when you see in the Old Testament uh, a passage, for instance, like Isaiah 53, you have the suffering servant who comes and does what? Who, who is, he is both, he is both priest and offering. He's both the one who offers and he is what is offered. You see that clearly in the, uh, in the suffering servant passages in Isaiah, the servant songs. You see that, um, do, do you see it in other places in, in the prophets? And the answer is, is actually yes. Right? So it's not just a matter of him coming and bearing the covenant curse for us bearing the judgment that we deserve, but there's also a sense in which he comes not just as the suffering servant, but also the obedient servant. So, was Adam son of God? Yes. Was he, was he good at it? <laughs> no, he fails. All right, so guess who becomes the next son of God? Israel. Is Israel ever identified as God's son? All over the place, all over the place. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel, my firstborn, right? So Israel is now to be the son. What is the son supposed to do? The son is supposed to obey the father. The son is supposed to actually walk in the commandments of the Lord. That's what Adam was supposed to do. That's what Israel was supposed to do. And how well did Israel do? No, they, yeah, they, they didn't even get a report card. I mean, it, it, they, were, they were so far below F, they didn't even get a report card. And so what is God's great remedy for a failed son, Adam, and a failed son, Israel, and that is his own son, okay? Jesus Christ. Now, here's, here's just an amazing thing to me. And again, this is, 
this requires that you actually read your Bible um, with your eyes open. So just, uh, this is just, by the way, this is just an example. Turn over to Ezekiel 19. And it's this kind of stuff that slows me down that makes these lessons go into multi-lesson series. So By the way, we could, we could reduplicate what I'm about to read to you probably four or five other times. So, before I read it, let me just ask you this question. What does Jesus say in John 15? Okay. What kind of vine? True vine. Is that important? I am the true vine. You're the branches. Father's the vine dresser, right? And we read that passage, and you know what we fail to see? We read it horticulturally, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you listen to guys, and they'll say, so in Israel, what this means is that, in, uh, that, that they pick up the branches, and they do this, and they do that, and they go through all of these horticultural details. And you know what people miss when they read John 15? They miss true vine, which means there is a, another vine that didn't do too well, right? So guess who that other vine is? Huh? It's Israel. So, by the way, like I said, we could look at other passages. It's just this one struck me. So, 19.10. Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by the waters. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant water. It had strong branches fit for scepters of rulers and its height was raised above the clouds so that it was seen in its height with the mass of its branches. Then notice, but it was plucked up in fury. So by the way, vine branches plucked up. Are those parallel in John 15? Yes. It was cast down to the ground. The east wind dried, its, uh, dried up its fruit. Its strong branch was torn off so that it withered. The fire consumed it. So cut off branches and consumed by fire. John 15, right? Okay. And now it's planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. The fire has gone out from its branch. It is consumed. It shoots and fruit. Now notice this so that there is not in it a strong branch, a scepter to rule. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am, which is significant all by itself, I am the true vine. Israel was supposed to be God's vineyard, that was producing a glorious crop for his glory. Isaiah 5, yeah, you were supposed to be that. I took every uh, necessary uh, uh, effort to, to, to dig a trench and to water you and, 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 and all of that, but you end up producing a stink crop. Okay, right? So Israel is a failed vine. Israel is a failed vineyard. Israel is a vineyard that actually a vine that has been plucked up and cast off. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, guess what he's saying? I am what Israel was supposed to be. So, Jesus bears the curse, the judgment. He also fulfills the covenant demands through his obedience So he's not just the suffering servant, he's the obedient servant. And so you have um, Jeremiah 23, where God is, is, is excoriating the false prophets and then says that he is going to raise up a righteous branch, right? By the way, branch is a 
messianic title, and I'm going to raise up a righteous branch. And what is that righteous branch's name? By the way, he's a descendant of David, and he, his name is Jehovah Sidkenu. Yahweh, our righteousness. Okay? So he not only bears the curse, he also is the obedient son who is Yahweh, our righteousness. So think of it this way. The covenant curses demonstrate the necessity of of divine judgment that comes upon covenant breakers. What is required? Perfect covenant obedience. What has happened? Covenant infidelity, apostasy, idolatry, sin. What does Messiah do? Messiah, anointed one, anointed prophet, priest, king. What does Messiah do? He comes and bears the punishment of the curse and judgment and then obeys that covenant for us. You know what you have? You have the gospel. It's what you have. You have the gospel. Jesus paying the penalty for your sins and providing you a righteousness which you need in order to be saved. And so that covenant foundation finds its preeminent fulfillment in Jesus Christ so that as the prophets talk about judgment and then most gloriously talk about salvation, they're pointing us to the one who's going to bear the judgment and bring the salvation. Now, the way that this ends up happening, of course, is also covenantally. So Jesus inaugurates that new covenant in his blood. And um, that, that, that restoration of the kingdom and the covenant is, in a sense, sort of the heart and soul of the prophet's message of promise and hope. So I mentioned this in, in Sunday school. But here's, here's the, 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 the really interesting thing is that you look through the prophets and you find oracles of judgment, oracles of doom. Um, God's going to bring covenant curse. God's going to exile, which is the ultimate act of covenant curse, is exile. And then God makes these restoration promises, calls his people to repent for sure. But guess what you find in these restoration promises over and over and over again? And that is The restoration ultimately isn't contingent upon the people's repentance. It's contingent upon God's initiative and God's grace. In other words, God tells the people to turn, but guess what he does? He turns them. He does for them what they obviously cannot do for themselves. And that, of course, points us Really, I mean, beautifully to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ fulfills the words of the prophets in that sense, active and passive obedience. You think of it that way. But then Christ also fulfills the office of prophet. Okay, so understand that we're we're, we're looking at this at different angles. So Christ um, Christ fulfills what the prophets foretold: judgment, salvation. But he also fulfills the office of prophet. So this is, uh, this is old news to you guys. Messiah, anointed one, three offices requiring anointing, right? So the, the, the threefold office of, of Christ, Christ is prophet, priest, and king, right? That's, that's Christ's mediatorial messianic role, okay? So you guys, you guys know this. So, um, so Christ as king of his people, rules over us and defends us, but he actually mediates God's rule over us as his subject. Christ as as priest 
actually, so as king, he represents God to the people. As priest, he represents the people before God. How was that pictured under the Old Covenant? Well, when the priest actually wore the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes on his breastplate as he went into the holy place, and then once a year, the Holy of Holies, he's representing the people before God as their mediator. And so Jesus actually, as our great high priest, represents us before the Father through atonement and intercession, right? And so you've got king, you've got priest, but then you also got prophet, And it is at this point that what Moses says back in Deuteronomy 18 begins to make perfect sense because Moses said that God was going to raise up from among you a prophet like me. So if you you think of it in, in terms of a graph, you've got Moses, fountainhead of all the prophets, and then all the prophets in a sense are sort of down here. It's all inspired, but as far as greatness, Moses is the great prophet. All the subsequent prophets are dependent on Moses, but then there's going to come I'm a prophet who's actually back up here. And that's Christ. And so how do we how do we know that? Well, you've got the Deuteronomy passage that we've already uh, looked at, but look over at Acts chapter 3. This was this was not lost on the apostles. They, they understood exactly what was happening. And so um, Peter's preaching after he heals the lame man. Uh, and so we'll start at verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. Now notice this, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And so who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel... So you got Moses, now down to Samuel, and all his successors, onward, also announced these things. And so the, um, the, the New Testament perspective is that Jesus himself is actually that great prophet that was foretold who was to come. So that the writer to the Hebrews does this. He does two things that are remarkable. The first is he says, right out of the gate, in the past, in many parts, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. Right? Here, he spoke to him this way, spoke to him that way, spoke to him at this time, spoke to him at that time, right? To the fathers, through the prophets, right? A multitude of revelation. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in son, right? So in other words, all of the prophets were bringing the word, Jesus Christ comes and he's the final word, right? Or you could think of it this way. The prophets brought the word of the Lord. Jesus is the word of the Lord, right? Am am I like making that up? And the answer is no. John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so, um, by the way, so what the writer does then is then in chapter 3, he says that Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is son over the house, which means that Jesus is superior 
to Moses. It's not just a matter of Moses, prophets, Jesus. It's Moses, prophets, Jesus. Okay? So, Jesus fulfills the office of prophet consummately. He is the very incarnation of the word. And um, there's something that I'd really like, love to show you, um, but I don't think I have time. And that is... Um, the way the book of Matthew actually picks up this uh, Moses theme and applies it to Jesus. Okay. Well, now that I've told you that, now I have to kind of tell you, right? Um, so, <laughs> um, I would argue that one of the... Um, underlying purposes of the gospel of Matthew is to show that Jesus is the new and better Moses. Okay? Jesus is the new and better Moses. All right? Um, By the way, not only do you have that in Hebrews 3, you also actually have it in John chapter 1 and verse 17, right? Truth, um, the law is given through Moses. Grace and truth, New American Standard puts it like this, are realized in Jesus Christ, right? So Moses is mediator of law, Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of grace and truth. Okay. So, when you get to the book of Matthew, um, by the way, how does Matthew begin? Genealogy. You're like, oh, genealogies. Not, not at all. Um, in fact, there's a number of things. I hope you don't plan to go to bed tonight because this is just so awesome. Um, this is the book of the Gennesios, Biblios, the book of the generations or beginnings of Jesus Christ. That phrase, by the way, comes directly to us from the book of Genesis. Okay? Why? It's a new beginning. (laughs) It's a new beginning. And what is this book of the generations of Jesus Christ? Son of Abraham. Son of David. And then you have this genealogy that's broken into three parts. Okay? With certain um, stopping points or junctures in redemptive history. And so you go, from, um, you go from Abraham to David, David to the deportation, deportation up until the time of Messiah, right? You got three. And so genealogies are theological, okay? If you read them like you're a Mormon, all right, and you're just looking for the next generation, you're missing it. Those three sections are made of Seven and seven, seven and seven, seven and seven. Okay? And by the way, you've got Gentiles in there too. Okay? Six sevens and then Messiah. Which is a theological um, number way of saying in the fullness of time. All right? We, we track in here, right? So, then you have, um, I, gotta, I gotta speed this up, so we won't go into that much detail anymore. So, Jesus is born, and he has to flee to Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Okay? Um... Jesus is born and escapes the edict 
of a king. So Herod commanded all the babies that were born to be killed, and somebody else did that too. Pharaoh. Jesus escapes the edict of Herod, just as Moses escaped the edict of Pharaoh. Um, Jesus returns to his homeland after the death of Herod, and Moses returns to his homeland, Exodus 4, 19 and 20. And so just like Moses, Jesus is, in fact, a new deliverer. And so um, Jesus, the first public thing that Jesus does is he's baptized, right? Anybody want to take a guess what, what the baptism parallels? What's that? Okay, okay. <laughs> excellent, excellent, excellent guess. You're right. Red Sea. Okay. Where do you get that? So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the Israelites, as they crossed the Red Sea, were baptized into Moses. All right? So Jesus goes into the water, comes up out of the water. And how do you know this is the parallel? What happens immediately after Jesus' baptism? He's thrust into the wilderness for 40 days. You you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see these things, right? You just have to like read with at least one eye open, okay? So you've got these great parallels, right? But let me just give you one one more that is, um, well, let me give you two more. The, The book of Matthew is divided into five discourses. And each discourse ends with a formula statement that echoes the way that Moses' discourse ends at the end of Deuteronomy. Well, what's the big deal? Well, do you want to just conjecture why five discourses? What's that? Yeah. Parallels the five books of the Pentateuch. But then, probably one of the most significant things is the Sermon on the Mount. Right? So, by the way, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the end of the Sermon on the Mount actually parallel Moses going up to Sinai. Okay. And what's interesting is the, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is in chapter 5, where Jesus says a series of times, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, Now, sometimes when he says, you've heard that it was said, it is from Moses directly. You've heard, you shall not commit adultery. Right? You've heard, you shall not commit murder. But then sometimes it's, you've heard, and then it's, in a sense, a a, a citation or at least a sentiment from the ancients. Okay, so you've got both Moses and tradition. And then Jesus makes this little phrase, says this little, but I say to you. Okay, now, in a sense, Jesus is at one level, the new lawgiver who doesn't nullify Moses, but properly interprets Moses, showing the spirit, not the letter of the law. And then you have this closing triad um, in, in chapter 7. You have the two ways, right? Narrow and broad, right? And then you have 
two different kinds of houses to build. So two ways, two trees, two houses. You know what Moses does in Deuteronomy chapter 30? He says, I've set before you today life and death. Two ways. Choose life that you may live. All right? So when, when we say that Jesus fulfills the office of prophet, yes, Jesus is the uh, incarnation of the word. There's no two ways about that. But he is, let's just put it this way, he is the fulfillment in that he is the embodiment, not just of Moses, but all the prophets. Certainly Moses, but also all the prophets. So Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi, Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 14 and following. And Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? So what he's doing is he's asking for what? He's asking for, so what do the, what do the uh, latest uh, polls say? Who do men say that I am? And of course, they know. They read the tabloids. And what do they say? Some say you are Elijah. Jeremiah. John the Baptist. Or one of the prophets. Isn't it interesting that when he said, who do men say that I am? They didn't say, some say you're Hezekiah. Or some say you're Samson. Or some say you're Aaron. When he asks, who do the people say that I am? All of those are prophets. And in fact, why might people think that Jesus was Elijah? Not only because God said he was going to send Elijah at the end of Malachi 4, right? But Jesus does an awful lot of Elijah-type things. When he raises the widow's dead son, the widow of Nain, guess what? That's an Elijah-type thing, right? Courage of Elijah. I mean, just a number, right? What about Jeremiah? Why would people go, maybe that's Jeremiah, what, what's Jeremiah's nickname? The weeping prophet. Doesn't Jesus actually just weep over Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I've ga- longed to gather you. And, um, and then, of course, um, and then just like John the Baptist. Why John the Baptist? Well, because, so John the Baptist is, Jesus actually says John the Baptist is the greatest of the prophets. Maybe John the Baptist got ready. Now, of course, they're, they're, it's, it's not the accuracy of their projections that's important because they're, they're not. It's that when they saw Jesus, they see the prophet. Okay? They don't think in terms of priest. They don't think in terms of king. They think in terms of prophet. He's just like Elijah. He's like Jeremiah. He's like one of the prophets. Okay? So when Jesus embodies the, 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 the prophets, right? He is the word. He's the revelation of the father. This is why he is a prophet, but he's greater than the prophet. He's so much more. So the prophets could point the people to God. Jesus actually, um, so John says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten has seen him who comes from the bosom of the Father. He has exegeted him. Jesus does for us what no prophet could ever do. I mean, here's, here's Isaiah in the throne room in Isaiah 6, gives us one of the most powerful, glorious revelations of God that you could imagine. And even that pales compared to what Jesus brings to us because he's one with the Father. So, 
Jesus not only fulfills the words of the prophet, prophets, he fulfills the very office of prophet, and in that sense, he is the greatest prophet because he is the word from the Father. Now, um, this the last part, which I can't do in two minutes, is like really cool. Okay? And that is the prophetic shape of the New Testament. Um, do you see the passages there? Those are just samples, all right? Acts 24, and then Romans 1, 3, 16. You get to the New Testament. And so Paul basically, you know, here's Paul. He gets, you know, preaches the gospel, gets arrested. And um, he's on trial. And basically he says, um, I'm not saying anything different than what's already been said by the prophets. Okay? In other words, there is perfect continuity between what I'm telling you about the Messiah and what the prophets already said, right? So then you open up the book of Romans and you can just do this basically all throughout. And um, so Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus um, appointed beforehand Uh, for the gospel, which was foretold by the prophets, right? So what's Paul doing? Just carrying on the ministry of the prophets. (laughs) Uh, You get to chapter 3, and it says um, that, um, that the righteousness of God does not come through the law, but is testified by the law and the prophets, And then Paul wraps up the book of Romans, chapter 16, and he starts talking about this long mystery long ago, uh, which is now uh, revealed, was actually spoken beforehand by the prophets. Now, what I really wanted to show you, and I have no way to actually do this, is if you you take um, the uh, Nestle-Alon 28th uh, Greek uh, text or the UBS fifth edition, you go to the back and you'll find that you have indices. One is Old Testament citations. Okay? And they go Old Testament order and then show where that is cited in the New Testament. Then they have New Testament order and then show where you have quotations or citations from the prophets, right? Or from the Old Testament. But then you not only have quotations or citations, you also have allusions and verbal parallels. Do you know that when you go to the section on Isaiah to see how many quotations, allusions, and verbal parallels there are of the book of Isaiah in the New Testament, do you know you go five pages of microscopic print? Okay? Five pages of quotation, illusion, or verbal parallel that you have in the New Testament. So let me just say, that's just one example Okay, and Isaiah is the biggest. There's no, there's no doubt about it. What that means is that you cannot understand the depth of the New Testament unless you understand the prophets. Okay? All right? Now, let me just ruin your day. And you can't understand the prophets unless you understand the New Testament. All right? You see why, right? Right? And so if you get if you get an eyeball, not just for for quotation, our Bibles typically 
will let us know when, the, when an Old Testament text is being quoted, right? Usually, the letters are all in caps, okay? Right? You've noticed this, right? Old Testament. And then, of course, you have these formula statements, like as it's written in the prophets or something like that. Um, but you know what our, our, our New Testaments don't do? Except, to some degree, in your cross-references, So Bibles with cross-references actually are super helpful because what you may have in your cross-references may be one or two allusions or verbal parallels that are listed. What I want to say is that even the lists of allusions and verbal parallels is not exhaustive. What you end up having in the New Testament is you end up having the prophets, the Old Testament as a whole, but the prophets in particular, spread throughout, marbled throughout. And if you simply get eyes to see, you will be stunned. Okay? Now, Let me just show you one example, and then I'll pray. And then show you another example and pray again. (laughs) All right, so just John chapter 12. And with this, we'll be done because we could really just have a ton of fun doing this. Um, So John chapter 12. And we're going to start at verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, so this is quotation, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, where's that from? Isaiah, but Isaiah 53, okay? For this reason, they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He's blinded their eyes, he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. So where's that from? Isaiah 6. What happens in Isaiah 6? Isaiah sees God enthroned, holy, holy holy, right? That's what happens in Isaiah 6. Now just look at this, verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of So Isaiah says, Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 6, because he saw his glory. Whose glory? It's Christ's glory. Christ is the one that's in the context. And he, Isaiah, spoke of him, Christ. So, New Testament perspective from John chapter 12 is really something incredible. And that is John, or yeah, Isaiah, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ. And he saw Christ's glory. And he saw Christ's suffering. And I'm just going to tell you, you can do this. Dozens of times in the New Testament. 
Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever read slowly enough to actually say, he saw whose glory? He spoke of who? Okay. And this goes on and on and on. And that is why the disciples on the road to Emmaus said, did not our hearts burn when he explained the scriptures to us? I think just like singing till midnight would be a good thing, but what a glorious glorious Bible we have that speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ in ways that we've not even considered, right? Well, let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the revelation of your holy word. Lord, it is, it is absolutely stunning. Father, as we think about your word, whatever we know about it, we've only scratched the surface, and so we pray that you would not only give us a hunger to, to see Christ, Lord, to see Christ in the prophets, to see Christ in the Old Testament, but Lord, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see and that you would fill us with wonder and love and praise as we think about our Lord Jesus in these ways. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.